Have you ever ridden on a bumper car or driven a bumper car? Now, bumper car ride is something you'll see at the fair or at amusement parks. It's basically just a, a big, huge open space, and that big open space is the track. There's a bunch of electric cars that are on that track, and, and each electric car has a, a huge bumper around the base. And then there's a steering wheel and a gas pedal so that you can drive around and, and bump into people. Now, some people bump into you on purpose. This is the guy that bought $95 worth of tickets just for the bumper car ride. He's wearing a helmet with flames painted on the side. And across the back, he has his nickname airbrushed, Slammer. That guy purposely bumps into you. It's, it's not an accident. It's why he's there. There's other people, though, that have no clue what they're doing. They are spinning that wheel in every different direction. They're bumping into anybody and everything that they can find like they hadn't been out of the house in 10 months. They have no earthly idea what they're doing. I was reading something this week about bumper cars, and it said something kind of interesting that goes something like this. No matter who it was, Slammer with his airbrushed helmet or the person who hadn't been out of their house in 10 months, no matter who it is that hits you, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for you to turn and look at them and go, I can't believe you just bumped me. In other words, you, you shouldn't take bumper cars personally. It's not personal. It's just bumper cars. That's all it is. What does it mean to take things personally? Well, it means that we believe that whatever was said or whatever was done or whatever happened was purposed and aimed just at us and that it was all coming right at us the whole time. So how do we respond when we take things personally? Well, usually we'll pout or we'll get angry or we will pitch a child size fit or for bigger kids, we might pitch an adult size fit and we might just pretty much have a big, huge brouhaha over the fact that we are taking this personally. Psychologists note that taking things personally is bad for your mental health. The Bible says that taking things personally is bad for your spiritual health. But the reality is we all know we're human, right? And sometimes we're going to get our feelings hurt. Sometimes we're going to take something personal that we probably shouldn't have taken personal, and that's just going to happen. But as Christians, that should happen very, very, very occasionally. In other words, being overly sensitive and taking things personally and getting your feelings hurt all the time, those are not spiritual gifts. Those are not things that are supposed to be a part of our life in and every day. But is there a time, is there a way that Christians should take things personally? Is there a time that, that Christians should be particularly sensitive to something? Well, there is, but not in the prideful, selfish way. Not in the how people are treating you, but more in the how you are treating others. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that as Christians, it's supposed to be different when we bump into people. There's supposed to be a difference. This morning we're going to look at that difference. In Titus chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 12. Paul writes to his friend Titus some closing words, and this is what he says. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Paul is closing out his letter to Titus, and he closes it out by telling Titus he's going to be replaced. 
That's an interesting way to close things out. But it's exactly what he's saying. He's going to be replaced either temporarily or permanently. Titus was no longer going to be the pastor. Now, let me just give two angles to this, hopefully, that will be helpful for us. That reportedly, D.L. Moody was the one who originally said this, that the best kind of committee to be on is a committee of three where one person is always sick and the other person never shows up. In other words, the idea is that you get a lot more done just by yourself. Now, there is a lot of truth to that, and there is some truth to that. But the reality is there's also some sin in that, too. Uh, and, and honestly, I would confess it for myself because I, I tend to always try to do things myself. And, and I need to learn that that's sin, and I need to change and be better so you can pray for me in that. But the reality is that the sinful side of that is not including people actually is, is not helpful to the gospel. It's not helpful to God growing his kingdom and doing his work. See, the reality is it's not always true in America and especially in the South, but everything's not supposed to revolve around the senior pastor. A senior pastor is not supposed to be the person that is in charge of everything or teaches every study or meets every need or is on call for every need. And here's why. One, it will emotionally or spiritually kill the pastor. It might emotionally or spiritually kill the pastor's family. At the very least, it damages the whole idea of what it means to be the body of Christ. And the truth of the matter is, pastors can be replaced like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to get myself fired here, okay? But, but the reality is, is that you can't always put everything around one person because that's the opposite of how the gospel is really supposed to work. The reality is we are a body of Christ. It's what God has called us to be. And so within the body, the pastor has one part of all of that, but it is just a part. Now, it's a pretty important part because it's a part that says, hey, i got to be sure that I'm helping the church grow deeper in their love and deeper in their devotion to the gospel. And so it is an important part, but the important part is the gospel. The gospel itself is what matters the most. So... If you were to ask my opinion on some ministry idea or some ministry event or, or something about the church, and I were to say, hmm, no, or I were to say, not yet, or I were to say, maybe, and I might say yes, the staff will tell you every now and then I say yes to stuff, I'm, I'm not a complete miser here, but if I say those things, it's not because I'm mean and I want to egg your house. That's not why I would say no or not yet or maybe. Likewise, if the way things have been done get changed or a new way of doing things begins, it's not because I'm an evil overlord trying to get my way or the highway. That's, that's not what's going on. What it means is this, that my unique part of the body of Christ is to be prayerfully obsessed that our church is together for the gospel. Together for the gospel. Not together for Holland Avenue Baptist Church. Not together for a traditional way of doing things. Not together for a contemporary way of doing things. Not together for the children or the youth or the senior adults or the young adults or the young married couples with kids. Not together for the community. Not together for the lost. Not together for the pastor. But together for the gospel. Because being together for the gospel is what matters the most. Because if you're together for the gospel, all of those other things, guess what? They work out. But when those things become first and most, the gospel takes a footnote to the life of the church. And the gospel does not need to be a footnote 
Why? Because it is the greatest news in the universe. It is greater than anything that else that we could possibly communicate ever. The gospel is great news. This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so what was of first importance to Paul? Verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Those are the basic facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the, the basic facts of the good news. But those are not just basic facts. They're not just designed for us to put together a nice religious organization or a nice religious institution. Those facts are not just designed to, to help us have better principles for living our lives. Those facts are more real than that. This is what Peter said, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You see, the gospel is not about being a better person. The gospel is not about being a, a better moral person. The gospel is not about just living in community with other Christians. The gospel is not about even living out the, the patterns and the example of Jesus out in a secular world. The gospel is this amazing, stunning, astounding news that Jesus has made a way to make things right between you and God. That's, that's the gospel. This, this news about Jesus is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth, it's, it's not a legend, but it is this incredible truth that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, satisfied the penalty of your sin through his life, through his death, through his sacrifice on a cross outside of Jerusalem. The gospel is great news. And the gospel tells your heart and your mind and your soul that Jesus is the one who can bring you to God. And not just once, but all the time. See, the gospel is not just something that's out there for lost people. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. It is for Christians as well. There's a great book called The Gospel Primer by Martin Vincent. I'm sorry, by Milton Vincent. Um, we did it one time as a, just a family devotion book. It's an easy read, short chapters, short paragraphs. I like short stuff. I will, I will recognize books to you that are short and easy to read. I won't recognize, you know, those, those kind of books, short books. I'm a short book guy. Rick Thomas, paraphrasing Milton Vincent, says this, The gospelized person has nothing to fear, hide, or defend because the gospelized person knows that the worst possible thing that could be said about them has already been said about them from the cross. That's a great thought. That's a great word. Gospelized, not pasteurized, not churcherized, not religionized, not moralized, but, but gospelized. A gospelized person knows that the, the worst thing that's ever been said about them was said on the cross. And so we should take the cross personally. We should take what happened to Jesus personally because on the cross, Jesus satisfied the penalty of our guilty sin. Now, somebody might say, I don't know. I don't feel that guilty pretty nice guy, pretty nice gal. I make a good peach cobbler. I mean, you know, I, I don't cheat on my taxes. I put my kids through college. I, I gave some money to charity. I, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm that guilty. 
We mentioned some questions a couple of weeks ago that I bring back to our minds today from Matt Slick. Have you ever lied, stolen, lusted, coveted, or been angry with someone unjustly? I'll just go ahead and check the box, yes, for all of us there, in case you were wondering. Second question, have you ever offended God in any way? I'll go ahead and check the box, yes, for all of us again under that one. If so, then you have sinned. Your sin is against God because you have broken his law. So here's the bad news. The bad news is, is that if you're alive, you're guilty. <laughs> That's kind of how the math works. And the news gets a little worse in the next part. He goes on to write, also because he is infinite, your offense to him is infinite. You are not capable of appeasing an infinite God because you are a sinner. Nothing you can do will undo the damage caused by your sins. Well, the gospel says to be good news. Haven't heard any good news yet. Well, here's the good news. There's absolutely nothing you can do to undo the damage of your sin. But something has been done for you. The gospel has been done for you. What makes the gospel such great news is what it is and what it says and what it has done and what it is even doing even to this day. You see, a gospelized person doesn't run their life with pride or fear or worry or anger or pride or any of those other things because they know that the worst thing that's ever been said about them was said 2,000 years ago. If someone's persecuting you or giving you a hard time anywhere right now, I promise whatever they're saying is not worse than what was said about you and what was said about me on the cross. But see, a gospelized person also knows this. The best thing that's ever happened also happened 2,000 years ago at the cross because Jesus satisfied the penalty of our sin with his own life, with his own blood. The gospel, it is astoundingly great news because it offers life where there was no offer. It offers hope where there was no hope. It offers joy where there was no joy. So, can you imagine what God might be able to do through our church if we were together for the gospel? If we were really, really committed to the gospel first and most? Let's go beyond the church. Can you imagine what would happen in your marriage if you were together for the gospel? Can you imagine what would happen in your family if you were together for the gospel? Can you imagine what would happen with other believers and other Christians if we were really together for the gospel? You see, the gospel is not about any particular pastor. The gospel is not about any particular church or any church member. But the gospel is about Jesus. The, the gospel is about seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Because see, church members come and go, and pastors can be replaced, and church buildings can be replaced. But Jesus Christ can't be replaced. There's absolutely no one like Jesus. He is the treasure above all treasures. And so the call for us as Christians, the, the call for us as a church, is that we would be the kind of people that treasure Jesus first and most and more than anything, because he's just worthy to be treasured that way. And he cannot be taken away. He cannot be replaced. So here's why all that is important. Titus is being replaced. <laughs> Jesus isn't being replaced. Titus is being replaced. And who's replacing him? Well, it's going to be one of two guys, either Artemis or Tychicus. So who are they? Well, we have no idea who Artemis is. I mean, we don't have a dime, nothing. You know, Here, Here's all we know. 
we know that possibly the greatest Christian who ever lived thought Artemis would be a good guy to go fill in and replace Titus, pastoring and ministering. So his resume may be blank to us, but he's got a pretty good reference going for him here. And so Artemis may be somebody that's coming to replace Titus. Or it could be old Tychicus. I mean, I just have to think his friends called him Tick. You know, I mean, that's just way too much words. Too many, too many syllables there. So we'll, we'll just go with Tick for the fun of it right now. We know a little bit more about Tick here. We, we know that he was somebody that Paul really believed in. Uh, we know that he took at least one of Paul's letters to the church. He might have even brought the letter to Titus, could have taken one or two other letters. He was a, a faithful messenger. He was a faithful mailman for the gospel. And so Paul, even writing to the Colossians, he said, this is a really faithful guy. You can believe in him. You can trust in him because he's faithful to the Lord. He didn't primarily say he was faithful to him. He said, oh, I like this guy because he's faithful to Paul. No, he's faithful to the Lord. See, Paul would hand ministry off to people who were humble and made much of the gospel. But Paul would not hand ministry off to people who were focused too much on getting their name in the bulletin or focused too much on making much of their own opinions. Paul was looking for humble folks who wanted to make much of Jesus. The feel of this scene here is that Paul is not alone, that he has other people involved with him. That someone like Titus can pastor and shepherd and then he can be moved and someone else can come in and take in because it's not about that person. It's about the body of Christ. It's about the gospel of Christ. And so what we have here in closing out his letter is Paul saying, isn't it great that all these people are connected to the gospel? Isn't it great that we've got people who are really faithful to Jesus so much so that we can just have them serve in different places at different times? In other words, what we see here is that Paul was personally gospelized. He took the gospel personally. It was the definition of his life. But then there were some other people that did the exact same thing. They were gospelized people, and he involved them in the ministry. He involved them in the work. If you're not picking up on the challenge yet, the challenge is this. We all need to be gospelized people. We all need to be able to engage in the work of the gospel at any given time. Not just the pastor, not just the staff, but as believers that we would be part of the work of the kingdom. You say, well, I don't know. These, these guys, they were leading churches. I don't know if I can do that. All right, here's something that you might be able to do. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So Titus is going to leave. He's going to go to Nicopolis to spend the winter with Paul, to, to be encouraged, to have some fellowship, to be trained more for the ministry probably. And these other guys are going to come and take over. But before that time, Zenos and Apollos were going to ride by. Now we don't know whether Zenos was a Roman lawyer or a Jewish lawyer. If he was a Roman lawyer, he'd be experienced with Roman law. If he was a Jewish lawyer, he'd be experienced with the Scriptures. We don't know which, but we know this. He's a smart guy. And Paul said, I believe in this guy. He's humble. He wants to make much of Jesus, and I'm sending him that way. But he's also sending Apollos. Apollos was the rock star preacher of the day. I mean, he was the guy that was more gifted probably than anybody else at the known time at proclaiming the gospel. 
he was very, very good at preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel. And so these two guys were going to swing by, and Paul says to Titus, I want you and the church to feed them. If they need a poncho, give them a poncho. If they need a parka, give them a parka. If they need sandals, give them sandals. If they need money, give them money. Whatever it is that they need, please, you and the church, minister to their need. Why? Well, they were there for the purpose of the gospel. It's possible because Paul's written about false teachers. He's written about bad doctrine. Maybe he's brought the lawyer and the great preacher together to be a two-man team and to head out in the community and start promoting the real truth of the gospel. We don't know exactly why they were there, but we do know the church had an opportunity to help them out. So how can I personalize that for us as a church? Well, I would just say this. We need to be sure that at Holland Avenue, we're not here on an island on the corner. We need to do everything we can to pray that God would give us specific ways to bless gospel ministers, to bless gospel churches, to bless gospel missionaries in our community and to the uttermost parts of the earth, that we would be ready to serve others for the sake of the gospel. And I might put it this way, that we would learn to quit asking the question, well, what is our church going to get out of it? It's always the wrong question for the church. Churches, how is this going to make God famous? Because if God gets the glory and if God is famous, then we will get everything that we need from him. So we would serve guys like Zenos and Apollos. And they're evangelists. They're smart lawyers. These are pastors. These are church leaders. And so before you think it's all about them, Paul again invites all of us into the conversation. Look at verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. This is the fifth time in this short letter that Paul has mentioned good deeds. So good deeds must be a big deal. Good deeds must be something that we're supposed to be taking personally. We're, we're supposed to be focused on these good deeds. But remember that, that good deeds are not necessarily God deeds. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's atheists that do really good deeds. So a gospelized person is not just looking for good deeds, but they're looking for gospelized deeds. They're looking for things that are good, but also things that bring attention to the glory of God. So what does that look like? Ephesians 5, 8 and 10. Paul says, walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. How in the world do we learn what is pleasing to God? Well, here's what you got to do. You got to go just north of Jerusalem and you got to go over to the Pool of Gibeon. And when you get to the Pool of Gibeon, you need to take your shoes off. There'll be some other people there. And you need to put your shoes in the circle where everybody else has their shoes. And then you need to go and stand on the very top step at the Pool of Gibeon. And when you get on the top step, face northwest. Then take your right hand and hold your left ear. And then sing the chorus of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And in 77 seconds, a descendant of the tribe of Levi will come over and give you a list of ways that you can please God. I mean, that might work. I don't know. I prefer Paul's advice to Timothy, though, which goes a little bit like this. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and the woman and the boy and the girl and the teenager and the senior adult of God may be adequate, equipped for two good works, 17 good works, 43 good works. No, for every good work. 
In other words, what we need to be good deed doers is God's word. God is not some mean father who, you know, throws us out there and says, hey, you go out there and learn for yourself. Figure it out on your own. He doesn't do that. He gives us his word. He gives us his truth. He helps us with his truth. So we should be people of God's book. We should be people of God's truth. We should love God's word. We should be devoted to God's word. And one of the things that God's word helps us to do in our good deed doing is to discern the difference between pressing needs and and non-pressing needs. That's what Paul writes here. He says, they must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you're in the waiting room at the dentist waiting to get a root canal and my wife is in the ER with a kidney stone, I'm not coming to pray for your tooth. Don't take that personal, but you know, there's a difference of pressing need there. If I'm in my office on the phone with someone who's, who's talking to me about their marriage falling apart and you come stick a post-it note in the window of my door that says, hey, come help me with my paint color down in the Sunday school room, don't take it personal that I'm probably not going to come help you with the paint color in your Sunday school room. In other words, there's, there's a notion that we understand pressing and non-pressing, but it doesn't always get lived out in our real lives. I used this expression or illustration a few weeks ago in our Wednesday night study. The reality is to, to lose an elderly parent is hard. It is painful. Many of you have experienced that. I will experience that. But it's not an unusual pain in life. We know, we understand that no one in this room will live forever. And so it is a normal, hard pain of life to lose an elderly parent. But to lose a young child to cancer, that's a different pain. It's completely different. It's it's a unique pain. So a gospelized person sees the person who is hurting over the loss of a parent and, and they know to care for that person. But a gospelized person also knows that there are not expected, not normal, completely unusual pains that happen in life. And they know sometimes that's the more pressing need of the moment. And I might even say it this way. The reality is a few of us are probably need to be at those pressing needs and all of us need to be at the other needs. Does that make sense? That there's no way that I can be at every single pressing need. And there's no way that you can be at every single pressing need. But all of us, through our good deeds, can meet needs. All of us can care for others. And then at times, we see that unique need that needs the grace of Jesus in a unique way. Paul says, be sure that they understand the concept of, of meeting pressing needs. And then he says something really interesting almost like just a side note. You know what? Just tell them not to be unfruitful. In other words, he just says, look, just make sure they're all doing stuff for the kingdom. Make sure that they're functioning with good deeds. In other words, we really need to be praying for godly fruit in our lives. Now, remember, we may not be the prettiest peach on the tree, but ugly fruit is still fruit, and it's all right. So we just do what God has called us to do. Kevin DeYoung writes this, Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional times often seem like a waste. Church services are often forgettable. That's life. 
We drive to the same places, go through the same routines with the kids, buy the same groceries at the store, and share a bed with the same person every night. Church is often the same too. Same doctrines, same basic order of worship, same preacher, same people. But in all the smallness and sameness, God works. God works like the smallest seed in the garden growing to unbelievable heights, like beloved Tychicus, that faithful minister delivering the mail and apostolic greetings. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same direction. See, Paul was not a lone wolf. He was the leader of a team. And his team was on a long walk of obedience in the same direction because they knew where they were heading. And they knew how they got on the path to begin with. Look what he says in verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul had some gospelized people around him. Titus had some gospelized people around him in in Crete. There were some gospelized people out on the road delivering supplies and delivering letters about the gospel. And while all of these folks were in this long, obedient direction, while they were doing their gospelized walk, there were gospelized people like some of us who had not even been born yet. But all of us are gospelized by the same exact way. And Paul says it right there, by Grace. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, amazing, stunning favor of God. And so what does grace look like in real life? And maybe I might ask more specifically, what does grace look like in the church? Paul wrote a letter to Titus to to share with the churches around the island of Crete. Here's, Here's what you need to be doing. Paul's letter to the island of Crete has now made it to the island of South Carolina. And it's made it to the island of of Holland Avenue. God's word has has come to us, and, and we have this tremendous message of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so what does that look like in the church? This might be the most important thing I've ever shared with you about life in the local church. So be sure to turn your ears on for these last few thoughts. Again, I turn to Kevin DeYoung. Find a good local church, get involved, become a member, stay there for the long haul, put away thoughts of revolution for a while, and join the plotting visionaries. Go to church this Sunday and worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you and give people the benefit of the doubt. While you're there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager no one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the nose ringed. Volunteer for the nursery once in a while. And yes, bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everyone else. Invite a friend to church. Take the new couple out for coffee. Give to the Christmas offering. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy the Sundays that click for you. Pray extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And as Zechariah says, do not despise the day of small things. In other words, if God has rescued you in and through Jesus Christ, 
then when we bump into people, they should know something's different. The way we bump into people in some way, shape, or form, they should be able to hear, not perfectly, but somehow, they should be able to hear the amazing sounds of grace. See, the grace of God has rescued us. The grace of God has put us together. And the grace of God calls us to make a big deal out of grace, to bump into people with this incredible gospel that has captured our hearts. Let's be Christians like that. Let's be a church like that for the good of our lives, for the good of the lost, and for the fame and the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the normal things of life. Forgive us for the times that we are looking for the amazing, fantastic, revolutionary things. Sometimes you'll do those things. But Lord Jesus, walking with you sometimes is is very ordinary. And yet you're not ordinary. You're, You're extraordinary. So at work and at school, at the breakfast table, in the hospital room, at the graveside, when we're sitting in the closet and don't want to come out from depression, when we are so puffed up with pride that we are pushing everybody away, Lord Jesus, would you speak to our hearts and show us again the gospel. Remind us that we have nothing to fear and nothing to worry nothing to defend because the worst and the best for us happened at the cross. Give us joy and satisfaction in you. We cannot do that on our own, so we ask for help. Spirit, would you arrest and invade our hearts and our minds even now? Would you build within us a desire to see and know that we really don't need anything more than Jesus? And would you help us to be people that begin to think and continue to think and grow deeper in our understanding that we really believe we would rather have Jesus than anything. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen.